Good morning, all. It's good to be back. Missed all of you last Sunday while you were here worshiping together and hearing a fine sermon somewhere between Davenport, Iowa and Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I'm always glad to be back with my brothers and sisters in Christ when I come back to TCF. So this morning I want to begin by reading from 1 Thessalonians. There we go. Chapter 1, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful for the clarity of your word. We're grateful, Father God, for your amazing grace. We're also grateful that you are a loving God, that you are a God of justice and a God of holiness. We pray that as we tackle a difficult topic this morning, your Holy Spirit would fill our hearts with a sense of your leading, a sense of your wisdom, and the clarity of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in case you haven't figured it out by now, this morning we're looking at the wrath to come. Again, not a very pleasant topic, those of you who've heard My sermons for a few years know that I often like to begin with something humorous. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's designed to get your attention. One thing I try to do is to find some humor related to the text of the morning, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. But I have to tell you, it was very hard finding something truly humorous to fit this morning's message. I do think we can find humor in most things. I believe God has a sense of humor. That would be a great sermon someday. Brothers, let's uh, pray about that. I think God has a sense of humor. We see it in Scripture, and we certainly see it in His creation. We do, trust me. There we go. Now tell me these animals which God created don't make you want to laugh, huh? Then we see God's almost almost sarcastic sense of humor in Scripture. Proverbs 11.22 says, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Tell me you don't want to laugh when you hear that, even though it expresses a truth. Or how about Proverbs chapter 22, verse 13, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. That sounds like as good an excuse as I can come up with on a day when I'm feeling lazy, but don't try it with your boss tomorrow morning. I don't recommend that. But here's the thing, folks. Hell is just not funny. It's just not funny. There's a lot of humor out there about hell. Most of it is not really appropriate for church consumption. But more than that, most of it, it might be worth a chuckle, but it's really not that funny. So here we are with a topic this morning that most of us want to avoid, a topic that doesn't really lend itself to much humor, because it's so incredibly serious. Much of the church, even, seems to want to avoid it. There's a a teacher by the name of Sinclair Ferguson, and he told this story in a teaching that he did about hell. He said, a number of years ago, certainly within the lifetime of all of us present in this room, one of the royal princesses coming out of the cathedral service in England spoke to the dean of the chapter of the cathedral and said to him, is it true, dean, that there is a place called hell? To which the dean apparently replied, madam, the scriptures say so, 
Christian people have always believed so, and the Church of England confesses so. To which she responded, then in God's name, why did you not tell us so? We're all about God's good promises. We're all about his blessings. But what about this one? Referring to Jesus, Peter spoke these words in Acts. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. There is a judgment coming, my brothers and sisters. And that judgment means that there will be a separation. There will be a dividing line. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us about the separation of the sheep on one side, those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and on the other, the goats who are trusting in themselves and have not embraced the sacrifice of Jesus and trusted in him. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment. That's hell, folks. That's what it's referring to. And it makes us uncomfortable, and it should. It should make us uncomfortable. But that discomfort cannot allow us to water down or dismiss this incredibly important doctrine for our own sake as well as for the sake of those we are trying to reach. Yes, there is a reality here. We must be wise. We must be strategic about how and when we share this truth. I don't think we always want to lead with this truth, okay? But nevertheless, we cannot afford to do without the bad news of judgment to fully communicate the good news, the gospel of salvation. Unfortunately, this, comfort that we all sh- this discomfort that we all share to some degree about the reality of eternal punishment has caused many to fall away from the faith as they've tried to explain away the reality of hell and end up abandoning most other parts of the Christian faith as well. Most of those people started with a very simple question. How could a loving God condemn unbelievers for all eternity? Isn't that overkill? Isn't that excessive? Well, first of all, I want to tell you, God's not afraid of our questions. And we shouldn't be afraid to ask questions when we ask them in faith. Yet at the same time, God's also not particularly concerned about answering some of those questions fully and completely to our satisfaction in this life. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to believe him, to believe the one he has revealed himself to be in his word, not the one we wish he would be or the one we make in our own image. And some of these questions, while not sinful in and of themselves, may lead us down a dangerous path, as we'll see here in a moment. Think about the devil's first temptation of humanity. It was in the garden, right? When the devil asked Eve, while tempting her to eat of the forbidden fruit, did God really say? This was a strategy of Satan to undermine the word of God. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent, that's the enemy, that's the devil, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now it's critical for us as followers of Jesus to accurately interpret 
his word. But that's different from asking the question, did God really say? That's because how we ask a question, especially a question related to such foundational doctrines as heaven and hell, can be a step toward abandoning many other important doctrines of our faith as well, as we'll see. Questioning can be legitimate, but it can also be a search for loopholes. Haven't we seen that? Let me give you two examples of how spiritually dangerous it is, it can be for us as believers to ask that question. One is close to home because this man started a very successful church here in Tulsa, which became very large. Many of us know of him, or many of us knew him, as I did. At least most of his theology was fairly orthodox for many years until he began to ask the question specifically about hell, did God really say? Carlton Pearson, we're talking about, who pastored Higher Dimensions Church on South Memorial. He claims that God revealed to him that all are saved. And eventually, he rejected the very idea of hell. He started by preaching that Jesus saved everybody and that they will ultimately be saved. He called it the gospel of inclusion. And he wrote at that time, it's my objective to simply represent Jesus or represent Jesus in a softer and more loving way, being less excluding and more inclusive in his love, tolerance, acceptance, and glorious promise to all. So despite the warnings that Carlton had from some of those close to him that he was straying from biblical truth, he ignored that, and he began to preach this so-called revelation of his in his church. And within a year, this church of several thousand became a church of a few hundred. Now why is that? Well, thank God, some of those people who attended his church left understanding that for more than 2,000 years, the Orthodox, that small o Orthodox, meaning standard and most widely embraced true to Scripture truth, okay, is that there is a literal heaven, there is a literal hell, and at the judgment day, there will be a dividing, and some will go to heaven and some will go to hell. It's Orthodox because that's what Scripture clearly teaches. A movie about this part of Carlton's life was just released. And it paints Carlton as a poor, persecuted man who lost everything because he had the boldness to preach the truth, that there is no hell. Now here's a clip of that recent interview with him. Back in the 90s, the bishop was a successful Pentecostal minister of a megachurch in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He held popular revivals across the country, counseled presidents, and on and on. But he lost it all when he says he received a direct message from God that went against the teachings of the Pentecostal church. Bishop, great to have you here. Thank you, Megan. And that message was that there is no hell, that people who aren't, quote, saved are not going to hell, that in fact we have a loving and forgiving God. First, I thought there, there would, I believed in hell. I just didn't believe anybody would be in it because of the finished work of the cross. Uh, then I started thinking about the absurdity and the vulgarity of eternal torture. If it was purgative or corrective or remedial, I could understand some kind of hell. But when it's punishment and little children, if you're 12 and over, <laughs> till you're 90 years old, would all go and be tormented. It just didn't, I couldn't reconcile that with the moral character of a God of love. So you come out and you say that to your congregation, 6,000 people, and it did not go over well. And it not did not all. go over well with the church leaders beside yourself. Mm -hmm. 
and within a year you had lost your church yeah everything the property my my intellectual rights the name i had to sign off the from the 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 founder of the organization that i had founded and it was just a pretty torturous and lost your home lost my home you lost your fortune your my in my inheritance i didn't have any inheritance but what i had saved all my savings 401k because that goes directly against pentecostal teachings a fundamentalist and pentecostal teaching the evangelical teachings it goes against the Bible. The Bible can be very controversial because one day it says you love God and the mercy of God endures forever. How can mercy endure forever and hell endure forever? One would cancel out the other. And now you've gotten to a place that is more, shall I say, progressive. It, it's inclusive. Yeah. It's loving. In the, in the movie, it walks us through how you had this very close friend who was gay. And initially you were advising him, it's okay to be gay. You just can't do, do gay. gay. Yeah. And, then, and now you've evolved on all of that. Yes. yes? Yes. And what, what's your belief now? That everybody, my, my and just like the makeup artist just said here, not trying to correct anybody, just enhance everybody, who you already are. Bring out the best in you, celebrate, own, honor, respect, love yourself, and be yourself. We spend our lives, most of us, impersonating who we think people want us to be. And we become a world of imposters and impersonators. But when I stop putting on that air trying to please the people, and I love people. I had to uh, face the guy that I had never met. Mm-hmm. And now, now you don't have all this money and you don't have the big 6,000-person church, oh. but you're preaching what you believe is God's kind and loving and forgiving message. And, and was it worth it? I mean, do you, if you could go back now and do it over again, would you? Well, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Uh, <laughs> and nobody would be interested. The movie magnifies and amplifies the message I thought the church wanted to mute. It's like uh, Jason Siegel, one of the actors, said to me, Bishop, so what are you feeling, vindication or, or uh, revenge? I said, no revenge. I do feel vindication, but more importantly, I feel indication, an indication that maybe the universe, God, has a more important uh, posture for this message, that it really should reach masses. Netflix has 117 million homes. That's more than 6,000. Oh, my, my <laughs> God. <laughs> we have a few million watching this show, too. <laughs> So now, after years of preaching the gospel, he's excited about the possibility of telling millions of people that there's no hell. By his own admission, did you catch that? This contradicts the word of God, by his own admission. The other example I want to mention is a man named Rob Bell. Some of you are familiar with him as well. Here he is with Oprah, the high priestess of American spirituality. He spends a lot of time with Oprah these days. Like Carlton, He was a very good and clear and compelling communicator, actually probably still is. He built a big church. His happened to be in Michigan, largely on his personality and his speaking ability. But he, too, began asking a lot of questions. And with his book called Love Wins, he essentially concluded that there was no hell as Scripture presents. He writes in this book, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. And then he writes, this is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately 
needs to hear. So Rob Bell believes that hell causes people to reject Jesus. And, you know, let's be honest, there may be some truth in that. It's a hard truth, isn't it? But that's sad, but it doesn't mean that the doctrine isn't true. It doesn't mean that the doctrine isn't true. Both Carlton Pearson and Rob Bell, starting with their rejection of the doctrine of hell, have strayed now so far from any scriptural authority that their teaching can no longer in any meaningful way be called truly Christian. Bell wrote that hell is a, doc as a doctrine that is toxic. We know what toxic means. It means poisonous, right? We have others who call the doctrine perverted. Carlton Pearson has this on his website now. He writes, I am convinced the concept of eternal damnation is both absurd and obscene and vulgar, indeed a miscarriage of ethical and moral justice. I question the concept of eternal damnation and torment in a presumed customized torture chamber called hell. I question how a supposed loving God whose mercy endured forever, as Scripture says, would or could sponsor such an obscene place. I could not reconcile the love of God in such a vulgar concept. Through in-depth biblical and historical research and deeper self and soul reflection, I discovered that our traditional concept of hell was both flawed misinterpreted, irrelevant, and against the moral character of infinite love. You know what this is an example of, folks? This is an example of what some people have called cafeteria Christianity. Think about what you do when you go to a cafeteria. You have a panoply of options there, right? You like the roast beef, you like the mashed potatoes, you like the green beans, but you don't care for the asparagus, and you don't care for the chicken Alfredo. So in a cafeteria, that's fine. You pick what you like. You pick and choose what you like and you reject what you don't. Well, let me tell you this. The same Bible that Carlton claims to have researched in depth and found the statement, his mercy endures forever, and of course we know that that is in Scripture, it also says this in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians uh, it's actually chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, so excuse the reference there, those of you who are taking notes. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. <clears throat> they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So yes, his mercy endures forever, but yes, they will suffer eternal punishment. Both are true. Another problem for Pearson, for Bell, and others is that Jesus himself was hell's chief defender. So everybody seems to like Jesus, the wonderful good teacher, right? The kind, compassionate man who taught us all how to love. But let me tell you, when we dismiss hell, we dismiss Jesus. Randy Alcorn wrote the foreword to a really good book that was written in response to Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Mark Galley was the author of this book, and it's called God Wins. It's a very readable, very clear, unapologetic, and very biblical response to this undermining of the doctrine of hell. And Randy Alcorn wrote in the foreword of this book, though Christ's words about hell are clear, emphatic, and repeated, our temptation is to think that he didn't mean what he said. But isn't the most obvious conclusion that he really did? Something can be profoundly disturbing yet still be moral 
hell is moral because a good God must punish evil. You know what? You have to ignore so much of what Jesus himself spoke to dismiss or to undermine the doctrine of eternal punishment. Your problem isn't with the doctrine. Your problem is with Jesus who told us that this is true. A writer named Dorothy Sayers said, we cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. If we are free to reinterpret God's word whenever we don't like what it says, then the word is no longer authoritative. It's no longer our authority. At that point, Jesus is not authoritative either. I am authoritative. If we can dismiss and pick and choose and be cafeteria Christians, my faith becomes merely a collection of changing opinions or changing tastes, like in the cafeteria. Today I don't feel like eating meatloaf, or I don't like it, so I'll have the fried chicken. It's a faith that is always subject to revision. It's what we've referred to before as radical autonomy. The church has believed, the church does believe, and always will believe in hell. Why? Primarily because every New Testament author teaches the final punishment of the wicked. There's just a few examples here. I could have put pages and screens and screens of verses. There's just a few examples. I'm not going to read these verses this morning. But the idea here is that the evidence is so overwhelming in Scripture, you've got to do all kinds of dancing to get around it. You have to do all kinds of reinterpreting the plain meaning of Scripture. And the plain meaning of Scripture, even though, yes, there are passages of Scripture that are difficult to understand and that we don't fully understand, we talked about that in house church this past week, nevertheless, the plain meaning is where you start, folks. That's where you start. You start with the plain meaning of Scripture. If we can still claim to be Bible believers while radically reinterpreting Jesus' own words about hell, undermining their straightforward meaning, why should it end there? And we saw with Rob Bell and we saw with Carlton Pearson, it didn't end there. If the orthodox views on salvation and damnation are up for grabs, then surely virtually everything else is too. Randy Alcorn writes, our job is not to be God's public relations manager or to make him popular. The Almighty doesn't need us to give him a facelift or airbrush his image. Shouldn't we make God look good? But good on whose terms? God has his own terms. Our task is not to help people see God favorably, but to see him accurately. And to see him accurately, we must consider all of his attributes, not just his love. This is where most of those who end up questioning or denying the reality of hell get tripped up. Yes, the word of God clearly declares that God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16 are pretty straightforward. They say God is love. We don't need to reinterpret that at all either. But the word also clearly declares God to be just. And that's a good thing too because he's also the judge through Christ. Again, the words of Jesus himself in, first, or in John chapter 5, verse 26, beginning with that. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. These are the words of Jesus, folks. God always does what is just. We read it in Genesis. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We read in Deuteronomy chapter 32, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, Just and upright is he. So when God judges, it's right and appropriate, and it's completely just. Even in the New Testament, we read Romans chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Even more important is that characteristic of God that is arguably his most defining characteristic. As such, it's also kind of overarching, or it's the foundation on which all of his other attributes are based. And that is this. God is holy. God is holy. The psalmist declares, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Isaiah writes this in chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We read in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. There we are with the six-winged creatures again are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. So if love is God's defining characteristic, in other words, it pretty much says everything there is to say about him, then why don't we read something in Scripture like, Love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. That sounds more like a Beatles song than the word of God. The God that we see revealed in his word is not a single attribute God. He's too big for that. And certainly love is a vital characteristic. It's a vital attribute of God. His love is clearly demonstrated in Christ. And it's what he uses to draw us to himself. But we must also understand that we don't get to define what love is. God does. We don't get to define love. We don't get to define what justice is. God does. We don't get to define what righteousness is, what compassion is, what mercy is. God defines these things. That's why he gives us his word, folks. It helps us define what these things really are. That's why we must rely on the God that is revealed to us in his word, not on the God that we can redefine him to be according to our flawed and finite and sinful thinking. Remember, if Jesus himself said, as we read earlier in Matthew 
and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If Jesus himself said that, then if we try to explain this away somehow, aren't we somehow trying to set ourselves up as more loving than God? Well, I'm more loving than God. If I was God, I wouldn't have any go into eternal punishment. That's a little bit over the top for me. That's not really loving. That's essentially what Carlton Pearson and Rob Bell and many others who are denying the doctrine of eternal punishment are saying. Somehow they seem to know better than God. Somehow they're more loving than God, more compassionate than God, more forgiving. But here's another very important thing to think about. Hell is perhaps the most significant reason why Jesus came. When Jesus came and lived a sinless life and suffered and died on the cross, he was absorbing that eternal punishment, that wrath to come that I deserved. He delivered us. He delivered me, as we saw in our opening passage of Scripture and today's sermon title, from the wrath to come. That's what Jesus did for us. That's an already accomplished work. That's genuine. That's agape love. That's good news, folks. That is, in fact, the gospel. And we can't lose that. We can't lose that reality, especially as we seek to compel others to join us on this road to eternity. Our doctrine of hell comes from our biblical understanding of God. It reminds us that though God's love is amazing, it's rich, it's full, it can't be seen independently of his other attributes. It's united with his justice. It's united with his holiness. God's love is a holy and just love. Another overlooked aspect of many of the denials of hell is the problem of sin. There was one research study that showed that 64% of Americans believe that when they die, they will go to heaven, but less than 1% think they will go to hell. Many have this belief because they think something along these lines, something we've kind of looked at a little bit already. My God is too loving to pour out infinite suffering on anyone for sin. One writer noted that this is a deep misunderstanding of both God and the cross. On the cross, God himself in the flesh as Jesus Christ already took that punishment, the equivalent of the punishment of hell that all of us in this room richly deserve. He did it willingly, and he did it as part of his plan and his purpose from before the beginning of time. What an awesome thing to ponder, folks. But someone had to pay the price because sin is so horrible, it's so heinous in the eyes of God that it had to be punished, and Jesus did, in fact, pay that price. Sometimes we don't get that. But if the only evidence we have is the cross, it should be enough. If sin was, wasn't such a horrible offense before such a holy God, why would there be a need for a horrible, bloody cross? To choose sin rather than God is a high crime indeed. So most fundamentally, hell is correctly understood as God's just punishment on sin and guilt. In this sense, the horror of hell should offend our modern moral sensibilities, but not primarily because of the dreadfulness of the punishment in hell, but because of the awfulness of sin, the crime that demanded such a penalty. But the problem is not hell. 
And the problem is not God. Sin is the problem, and it is what should repulse us. So the doctrine of hell is very critical to our Christian faith. Without it, we cannot understand our complete dependence on God. We cannot understand the character and the danger of even the smallest sins. We can't understand the full scope of what it cost God through Christ to save us from eternal damnation. We can't understand his love for us in the cross if we dismiss this doctrine. Of course, we can stress, as we noted earlier, we can stress or we can emphasize hell in ways that are unwise, especially as we participate in Jesus' work of seeking and saving the lost. Yet it's only as we come to grips with this reality of hell that we can truly begin to grasp God's amazing grace. If God should open our eyes, even just a little bit, to understand the terrible price he paid, I believe we would in that moment comprehend the awful guilt of rejecting that price. There's a lyric that we sing here at TCF in one of the songs we do sometimes, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. At the cross, we see a demonstration that God loves us, yes, but he also takes our sin seriously. In this season in the life of our church of an emphasis on evangelism, this biblical understanding of hell should be a motivator to us, folks. Do we really believe what the Word of God teaches us about hell? Or are we going to be cafeteria Christians picking and choosing what we consider to be the good stuff from the Bible and ignoring or rejecting the harder truths? If what we claim to believe, okay, so do we really believe? If what we claim to believe about hell is true, then what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? If we believe that those who have not embraced the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as the only means of avoiding eternal wrath are headed to hell, then we all know a lot of people who are not yet, as our opening scripture said, delivered from the wrath to come. There is a wrath to come, and it's called hell. And the description we see of hell in scripture, we could take a lot of time looking at those, but we won't go there. But here's the only thing I want to say about that. It can only scratch the surface of how horrible it will be. Do we want the people we meet, the people we know, to go there? Now, I know that's a very blunt question, but hopefully through the Holy Spirit, it's very convicting to all of us. Let me tell you, it was very convicting to me this week as I studied and prepared for this message. Because after all, again, if we truly believe the biblical teaching about hell, we all know people who will spend forever, will spend eternity there. So what will we do? What will we do? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are, be, who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And Paul also wrote just a few chapters later in the same letter, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here we see, folks, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representative. God is making his appeal to a dying, lost world through us. God, through Christ, came to seek and to save the lost. But Paul tells us that God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. This is an awesome privilege as well as an awesome responsibility. He's making his appeal through us. We talked at the beginning about the kinds of questions we ask. Did God really say? Did God really say? But there's only one question that really matters to us and the lost, and it's in Matthew 16, 15. Who do you say that I am? These are the words of Jesus. Who do you say that I am? The answer to all that is revealed on the cross. But how do we respond? How do we respond? Now, I thought long and hard about how I don't want to make this feel like a guilt trip, okay? Because I really believe that guilt is a truly poor motivator. Guilt alone, which usually leads to a sense of condemnation, is truly a poor motivator. Grace and conviction are so much better and only the Holy Spirit can truly convict us. So as a response to his grace, the grace demonstrated in the reality that Jesus delivered me from the wrath to come, and in gratitude for that, what will I do? I remember being very challenged and convicted by an article by William Booth. Who knows who William Booth is? The founder of Salvation Army. Some of you have heard this. About 40 years ago when I first read this, uh, I was very convicted. It was written in 1885. It's too long to read to you in total this morning, but I'd encourage those of you who want to read the whole thing. I have copies of it here, and if we run out, you can contact me. But I'm going to read some excerpts from it, and even that is a little long, but I decided I wanted to read this this morning. I'm going to give you a flavor of it. It's called Who Cares? And here's a painting that was developed that depicted Booth's vision that he wrote from. And you can ponder as I read. So again, it's kind of long, so please listen carefully, stick with me, and ponder all we've heard this morning. The words of William Booth. On one of my recent journeys, as I gazed from the coach window, I was led into a train of thought concerning the conditions of the multitudes around me. They were living carelessly in the most open and shameless rebellion against God, without a thought for their eternal welfare. As I looked out the window, I seemed to see them all, millions of people all around me, given up to their drink and their pleasure, their dancing and their music, their business and their anxieties, their politics and their troubles. Ignorant, willfully ignorant in many cases, and in other instances, knowing all about the truth and not caring at all. And then this vision began. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. In that ocean, I saw... Myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. 
and all around the base of this rock I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers, strugglers out of this sea. Here and there, there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of all the consequences, in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me most, the sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks, reaching the place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole beings were wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of the platform were quite a mixed company. Only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care about the poor, perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Now, this astounding unconcern could not have been the result of ignorance or lack of knowledge because they lived right there in full sight of it all and even talked about it sometimes. Many even went regularly to hear lectures and sermons in which the awful state of those poor drowning creatures was described. But the thing to me that seemed the most amazing was that those on the platform to whom he called, who heard his voice and felt they ought to obey it, at least they said they did, those who confessed to love him much and were in full sympathy with him in the task he had undertaken, who worshipped him or who professed to do so, were so taken up <coughs> with their trades and professions their money-saving and pleasures, their families and circles, their religions and arguments about it, about their preparation for going to the mainland, that they did not listen to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being who had himself gone down into the sea. Anyway, if they heard it, they did not heed it. They did not care. And so the multitude went on right before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I understood it all. It was plain enough. That sea was the ocean of life, the sea of real, actual human existence. That lightning was the gleaming of piercing truth coming from Jehovah's throne. That thunder was the distant echoing of the wrath of God. Those multitudes of people shrieking, struggling, and agonizing in the stormy sea were the thousands and thousands of poor harlots and harlot makers, of drunkards and drunkard makers, of thieves, liars, blasphemers, and ungodly people of every kindred, tongue, and nation. They were all so unalike in their outward circumstances and conditions, yet all alike in one thing, all sinners before God, all held by and holding on to some iniquity, fascinated by some idol, the slaves of some devilish lust, and ruled by the foul fiend from the bottomless pit. All alike in one thing, no, 
I'll liken two things, not only the same in their wickedness, but unless rescued, the same in their sinning, sinking, down, 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 to the same terrible doom. That great sheltering rock represented Calvary, the place where Jesus had died for them, and the people on it were those who had been rescued. The handful of fierce, determined ones who were risking their own lives and saving the perishing were true soldiers of the cross of Christ. And then Booth concluded, My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the waters. You are on the rock. He is in the dark sea calling on you to come to him and help him. Will you go? Now what will you do? Isn't there a great clarity on some of these old writings? That's what we see from William Booth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask that question of ourselves. What will we do? What is our responsibility? What is our privilege, Lord? We want to respond to you in grace, Father, and not out of guilt. We want to respond to you in grace knowing that through the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you demonstrated agape love. You demonstrated the kind of love that we are to emulate, Father God, sacrificial love. And through the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and entrusting in that sacrifice, Lord, you have enabled us to be delivered from the wrath to come. Help us not to just sit on that, Father. Help us not, Father God, to just relax and sit on the platform and not do anything about those poor drowning wretches who are drowning in the sea all around us. But, Father, help us to respond to the conviction of your Holy Spirit. Help us to go as you asked us, Father. Help us to be your witnesses as you asked us, Father. Help us to be your ambassadors as we saw earlier in your word, Lord God. And help us, Father, to be those ones who are used by you to bring people into the kingdom of God, bring people onto that platform where they are delivered from the wrath to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.